0: Let's take a minute to pray uh, before we get going. Lord, thank you so much for your word that is living and active, that continues to speak to us today, even uh, an ancient text like the Ten Commandments, which we find ourselves in once again. Thank you for this timely word um, that is always in season, but uh, if it feels especially so uh, this week and in this season. I pray, Lord, that you would get through to us um, through all of the feelings that we're feeling and through uh, all the distractions that may be going on in our lives. Um, Would we hear your voice and your good news today? May we hear conviction where we need that as well. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for your ministry of opening the word to us. Amen. Shalom, the Hebrew word for multifaceted peace. Shalom is this amazingly compact, concentrated word that basically sums up all of what it means to thrive as a human being. So often it feels like our stuff that we're confronted with, the narrative that we're confronted with, uh, talks about the things that destroy life, uh, oppression and darkness and death and disease and racism and sexism and bullying and all these kind of things. But our faith, thankfully, isn't based on negatives. Um, it's not obsessed, actually, with death and decay. Our faith is, talks about the one who defeated death and decay. We have faith in the God of life, a God who desires us to live in shalom, who desires you and I to experience human thriving. Now, it's been said that in order to accomplish something that you've never accomplished before, uh, you need to be able to imagine what that something is. You know, if, if you're in a sport and you wanna, you're in basketball, right, Coach Tim, you've you got to imagine yourself making those free throws, right? And, and you play it on your mind, and then you can do it. You've got to imagine yourself uh, going to college. If your parents have never gone to college before, you've got to imagine yourself being there, doing that doing the unknown. And uh, so I thought it would be cool for us to imagine, just for a moment, what would it look like for you, for the people you know, for the society you live in, what would human thriving look like for you? Um, in fact, I'm going to encourage you to break off into pairs or threes or whatever your group is around you, and just share with each other some of the things like, you know, for me, like, I'll share one. For me, human thriving would feel Le- less hurried like I feel so often and it's my own fault a lot of times I take on so much I always feel like I'm hurrying and not not really enjoying not being able to be as present as I want to be so for me human thriving that's one of the pieces for me would be slowing down taking time how about for you let's just take a, a like a 60 second minute right like a real minute and just talk about what human thriving might look like Hey, just shout out some of the, uh, the, the ideas that you guys have been sharing. I've heard some good ones. Um, what are some things that you guys have been talking about? Andy, come on. Ooh. What was the second part? Health practices. Health practices. So God honoring and health practices. Okay. Feeling safe and loved. Yeah. Feeling safe and loved. nice, and not feeling tired all the time. Amen. That's a good one. Um, I was, th- one of the things that we talked about, I was thinking about you, the other people who have been sick lately, is just health, right? Like, physical health. Um, our sister Jeannie Wagner, right? She just had hip surgery, and it's just, like, giddy. Like, I didn't remember it could feel this good just to walk, like, uh, to, to have that pain-free sense, but yeah, that's another Oh, nice, Daniel. Yeah. Appreciating people for their talents. Happy birthday, Jen. Yeah. Yeah. I think emotional wholeness would be another piece. One of the things that we talked about was vocation, like people are created to have a a positive outlet, like to do meaningful work. A part of human thriving might be to have something that, productive to do, a place in community. Community was another one we talked about. Just having a place at the table, I think, is the way Morgan put it. Just feeling like we fit somewhere. Yeah. Good. One of the ways that God has helped us imagine and work toward human thriving believe it or not, is by giving us the Ten Commandments. I know you're like, wait a minute, isn't that just a list of thou shalt nots? Um, The Ten Commandments show us how some of the, uh, they show us some of the core ingredients to human thriving. So, for example, the very first commandment to to know God, right, to have no other gods before Him, um, is pretty much the first base, the foundation of all human thriving. It begins with a relationship with our Creator and our Sustainer and our Forgiver, And then the Ten Commandments also hold up a mirror to us, revealing what's really in our hearts. They tell us the truth about what prevents you and I from experiencing thriving. The Ten Commandments, in other words, kind of tell it like it is. They tell it like it really is. They warn us that certain ways of life are going to lead us to destruction. And this evening, we're going to focus on the Ninth Commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, in the original context, this commandment was intended to address corruption in the legal system. In order to have shalom, you need to have a safe, just, and equitable society. Let me say that again. In order to have shalom, you need to have a safe, just, and equitable society. I wonder if that has ever existed A system of law and order that works for the poor just as well as it works for the rich and powerful. In fact, a truly functioning system of law wouldn't even take into consideration a person's wealth or poverty or gender or race. Uh, Those things wouldn't matter in a perfect system. Israel, you'll remember, was supposed to be the people of God. They were set apart to be an example of shalom to the nations of the world who would then look at them and say, I want what they have. Look how they love each other. Look how they function. Look how productive they are. Look how abundant they are. Look how even wealthy they are. They're they're a magnificent people. I want to know what makes them tick. I want to know their God because their God's better than ours. That was the idea. And you may remember me saying, this is last year, so if you remember this, you're on it. But uh, uh, by the time that Pharaoh finally let Israel go from captivity, there were Egyptian people. Many nobles in Egypt actually witnessed the plagues. They witnessed the power of Yahweh over and against the Egyptian gods. And they said, you know what, can we go with you guys? And so even in that first generation of uh, the nation of Israel, as they went into the desert, they had Egyptians Uh, mixed blood. They were a multi-ethnic group, even before multi-ethnic things were cool. Um, In a world without modern forensics, there was no CSI Sinai, right? There's no like uh, uh, DNA and all of this kind of stuff. So uh, if a person was going to be uh, brought before a judge for a crime, there had to be at least two eyed witnesses. The stakes were high, though. If a witness was found to be giving false testimony, that witness would incur the penalty that the defendant would have incurred. Okay, so let's say, Scoon, I accuse you in the court of law of, uh, I don't know, stealing like 14 of my sheep, right? Um, and I, and I, I get some, I get Tommy to, I say, dude, if we nail this guy, he's going to have to give us 14 sheep. I'll give you like four of them, just, just for you saying so. But then we're found out. Not only does Scoon get off the hook, but now we are on the hook to pay him fourteen sheep. So, in that type of system, it really makes one think twice before they bring trumped-up charges against someone. And in the case of the death penalty, a person who caught that—I uh, <laughs> didn't—that was just for slip. uh, a slip—a person who who brings a false case in a capital case—they would also uh, be be killed. And that's crazy times. You can see why this commandment is so important. If there's going to be shalom, people have to be able to live without fear of false accusation, no matter what, their race or their gender or their social status. Let me just pause here for a minute before we go any further in the text. If part of shalom is an equitable and just system of justice, this is rhetorical, does our system promote shalom the way that we know it? If not, what needs to happen to fix our system so that it promotes shalom? Again, that's rhetorical. You can go work on that if you're uh, <laughs> in policymaking or the next time you vote. But part of being a false witness is the way we represent people in general. It's not just a case of what happens in a courtroom. It includes the rhetoric we espouse and and repeat over and over again. False witness includes the kind of talk that would stereotype whole groups of people, whether explicitly like saying all people from a certain ethnic origin are rapists and murderers, or implicitly, like assuming whole sectors of the rural working class are ignorant and unimportant. And we're just hitting on the proverbial tip of the iceberg. By the time we get to Exodus 23, this is in Exodus 20, so in three chapters, this commandment against false witness has clearly left the courtroom and is extended to encompass all of our speech about one another. Deuteronomy, Leviticus, proverbs and most of the new testament epistles especially the epistle of james all prohibit false witness in the form of gossip slander half-truths and lies in the marketplace our words are powerful which makes a lot of sense you and i are created in god's image and our god is the kind of god who can create the universe with a word Now, I'm not suggesting that you and I have that kind of creative power. Like, I cannot create matter, ex nihilo, out of nothing uh, with my words. But I am an image bearer of God. And my words and your words have a lot of power and how they build people up and how they tear people down. Think of the power of these two words I love you. To the right person, from the right person. At the right time, the words, I love you, do a lot more than send good vibes. They're words that can transform. They can break down walls. They can inspire greatness. In his book, Love Does, author Bob Goff talks about the power of words. Anyone read this book? It's fun. Bob Goff, as a young man, wanted to be a lawyer because he wanted to change the world. He wanted to do right by people. And so, he wasn't quite an academic, but he took the LSAT test, not realizing he you really had to study hard for it. He got horrible scores on the LSAT. He applied to all of these schools, and none of them wrote him back, not even rejection letters. Some of them sent his money, his application deposit back because his scores were so bad. And the way he puts it is the really smart kids got acceptance letters, and they got scholarships. The regular smart kids, the medium smart kids, got acceptance letters. The sort of smart kids got waiting list letters. He got no letters. And so he doesn't know what to do. All he knows is that he wants to be a lawyer to help people. So he goes into not just some low-level law school. He goes into Pepperdine University and introduces himself to the dean and says, hi, I'm Bob Goff. I want to be a lawyer because I want to change the world. And the dean's like, oh, great. He's like, yeah, I didn't get a letter uh, back from your school. I applied. Oh, let me see. Oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah, well, anyway, I don't know if you heard me, but I want to be a lawyer because I want to change the world. That's great. He goes, all right, well, it's not going to work out. So he's about ready to leave. The door's shutting, and Bob Goff gets this idea, sticks his foot in the door, stops. He goes, you know, you have the power to change my life. And the dean looks at him, and Bob Goff says, all you have to do is say the words, go get your books, and I could be in your law school. And the dean was like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So Bob Goff goes out. He doesn't know what to do. This is like three weeks before the start of school. And so outside the dean's office is one of those benches where people wait to see the dean, and he just sits there like all day, every day, every time the dean would come out. All you have to do is say, go get your books week after week after week, then school starts, day one, day two, day three. By day four, Bob Goff is sitting on this bench, still saying the same thing to the dean, thinking, I'm four days behind in my coursework, I haven't even started yet. Day five, the dean of students from the law school at Pepperdine University comes up, looks him in the eye, winks at him, and says, go get your books. The power of those words to absolutely change a life. Listen to this, Bob Goff writes, words can launch us. We don't need to be the dean to say words that change everything for somebody. Instead, God made it so that ordinary people like you and me can launch each other. I believe it's true that the rich people can say words that can change everything. And guess what? We are the ones who can say them. You and me, we're the ones who can say these words that launch people. They're powerful. As image bearers of the living God, we can use our words to empower and to encourage and to build up. But the reality is because of our sin nature, we often don't use our words for good. Instead, we bear false witness to the world about who we are and about who other people are and about who God is. The Ten Commandments offer us a dose of reality. They tell it like it is. They exist, the Ten Commandments, because we need them. And we need this word about false witnesses as a warning for three reasons. I'm going to give it to you. Okay, first, we need uh, this because of the power of our words. And when we bear false witness against someone, we can destroy their reputation When we talk behind people's backs in ways that tear them down rather than build them up, we do violence to them. And we have to remember that because people are made in the image of God, they deserve our respect because they're made in the image of God. And I, I for one, am often duped into the fact I, I have this double standard. I I live as a sinful person and I have one standard and I'm like, I'm all for the grace of God. And then for other people, I have a different standard and other people have to earn my respect. You ever do that? Especially with people you don't know very well. They've got to earn my respect. And what the Bible says is actually, yes, a person has to earn your respect if they're going to you know, get your allegiance or you're gonna vote for them or something like that. But I'm just talking about life, about talking uh, about someone People are made in God's image, and so unless my words are going to critique them directly or build them up peripherally, then I ought to think twice about what I'm saying. It's also true when we lump whole groups of people in a stereotypical way, when we say things like, all men are fill in the blank, or all women are like that, right? Right? When we make value judgments based on class or color or ethnic origin or religious background, we are bearing false witness because blanket statements aren't true about everybody. The second reason we need this commandment against false witness is because of the power of our words. Um, Bearing false witness destroys your character. When we lie about other people, or when we repeat something that is told to us in confidence that tears someone else down, we become untrustworthy to other people. Even among friends, if you're gossiping about someone else, people are going to wonder, if they can't be trusted with other people's stuff, I wonder if they, I can trust them with my stuff. And as image bearers of the living God, we need to protect our integrity. We should strive to be thought of as trustworthy and have a reputation for truthfulness and gentleness, because we want to reflect Christ-likeness. Like, how good is your witness about Christ going to be if you can't be trusted in the things of the mundane in your business life or in your friendship circles? That's a problem. Which brings us to the third reason we need this reminder about bearing false witness. When we fail to seek truth and tell the truth for the good of the world, we give the church a bad name. In ancient Israel, Israel was the embodiment of God, His people on the ground. And in a similar way, the church is the embodiment of Jesus. It's one of the main problems... With the church aligning itself with any political party, it doesn't matter what it is Democrat, Republican, Green, Libertarian, Independent, doesn't matter what it is. Let me say it this way the church, I'm talking about the church big C in the world, the church ought to point the world to ideals. Political parties have to deal with compromises, that's the way the world is. The church points people to ideals. Political parties have to deal in compromises, and both are necessary in a fallen world. The problem is the church's witness to the world is false if we endorse one party over another, because no party represents Jesus perfectly. No party perfectly represents jesus unless jesus is like running for president in that party and by the way when jesus comes in the fullness of his kingdom there's not going to be an election <laughs> unless you're reformed then you're already elect or not but you know you get what i'm saying like it's kind of called a kingdom because he's a king he doesn't like take votes it's just that's why i encourage you to like trust jesus anyway uh, <clears throat> When the world sees the church endorse a candidate, they assume we must be endorsing the whole package of that candidate, the evil with the good. But that is absolutely disastrous. Rather, the church needs to be a place that speaks truth. We'll come back to that in a minute, trust me. But first we need to take an honest look in the mirror. Why don't we use our witness to further shalom in the world more often? Why are we so divided, not only in our society, but as a species? If words can be used to launch people into positions where they can thrive, why do we use them so often to tear people down? It's just what we do. Why don't we tell the truth? All distortions of truth, at their essence, reveal our great, great insecurity. We live in some state of constant doubt that we are really loved by God. We live in a constant state, therefore, of competition that if we don't look out for ourselves, I doubt anyone else really will when the going gets tough. So we say the right things to advance our ideas, our position, our status. We don't show certain sides of ourselves so that people will like us. And like Adam and Eve hiding from God in the garden, because we don't want people to know who we really are, we only show certain aspects at certain times. And knowing that, like that's not news, in fact that was a snippet from another sermon about four years ago, you've heard it before, none of that knowledge is enough to change anything. Somehow knowing doesn't change the feeling on the inside. We need more than knowledge. We need rescue. We need more than information. We need transformation. We need more than good advice. We need good news. Our scripture reading earlier, Mark 14, 53 through 65, told the account of Jesus' trial before the religious leaders. If it weren't such a horrible story, it would almost be laughable that no false witnesses could even be found, not even two, that would corroborate the same stinking story. It was ridiculous. The high priest knew that the Sanhedrin, even uh, in the Sanhedrin, even false evidence must be corroborated between two independent witnesses, The whole passage is so full of irony. Here we have the high priest, the representative of God's temple, of God's word, and God himself, deliberately breaking God's law to falsify evidence against God's son. Why would God himself, Jesus, God in the flesh, why would he allow this false witness to condemn him? Some people have been attracted to the president-elect supposedly because he tells it like it is. The problem is who gets to define what it is? How is it, really? And can anyone know what it is? Can you know what it is for every single person on the planet, let alone, you know, this country? I'm not sure if I can tell you what it is in my heart on any given moment of any given day. But Jesus tells it like it really is. He says the hard words that need to be said, that each of us is enslaved to sin, or has been, that each of us is in need of rescue, that each of us needs to repent of our sin and rebellion. That if you can't say, forgive me, I am sorry, then you can't be part of the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus says. Jesus chose to be convicted by false witnesses because he knew his death and resurrection will have the power to save us from all false witnesses. Jesus knew that being a good role model for you and I is not enough. Jesus never says, hey, I want you to do exactly what I do. I need to say that again. I think sometimes as Christians we think that's exactly what he says. Jesus never says to you and me, do exactly what I do. You know what Jesus does? He does exactly what you and I cannot do. That's the good news. And then he says, come, follow me. Come, put your trust in me. Come, Find your life in me. Come. Find that you don't have to bear false witness anymore. Because you can be secure in your own skin. I've got you. I've saved you. And you don't need to demonize people anymore to make yourself feel strong. You don't have to sugarcoat reality. You don't have to make yourself look better to some people so they'll like you. Come. Be part of my family. I accept you. I know your brokenness and I love you anyway. I know your sin. And when you said, I'm sorry, forgive me, I repent, I did. I know you're confused, but I can give you life and a life worth living. Jesus wants to launch us with his words. If you've not been launched by his words before, would you receive his witness today? He tells it like it really is. That life that I just described to you is available through Christ. But there's another part of this story out of Mark's gospel. We have the story of the false witnesses who accused Jesus by bringing false accusations against him. They witnessed falsely against him. But in the passage directly following, we read about Jesus' friend and disciple, Peter. When Jesus was inside the home of the high priest being interrogated by these false witnesses, Peter was right outside in the courtyard of the high priest, warming himself by the fire, most likely with some of the servants of that household. And when one of the servant girls saw Peter, she said, you were with Jesus the Nazarene, and he denied it, and he said, I neither know or understand what you're talking about, lady. I added the lady part. Three times that evening, Peter denied, even knowing Jesus. He chose to preserve his own reputation his own comfort at the expense of speaking up for Jesus. While Jesus was being accused by false witnesses inside, Peter was a true witness who could have stepped up and provided witness for Jesus in that situation. But he remained silent. Peter's silence, in his silence, he was bearing false witness by not speaking up for what was right. And once Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he went and he found Peter. And he beat him up. No, he didn't do that, did he? (laughs) No, he's in Peter's presence. Peter repents, and Jesus restores him, forgives him, launches him with his words. And you know what happened to Peter? He became a man who stood up and critiqued the powers of that bee when they were corrupt. And he spoke words that comforted the oppressed people. And we are called to do the same. In this current national climate of fear and division, the church has a unique opportunity to be gloriously different than all the alternatives out there. We can have the courage to name brokenness and to name corruption where we see it. And we have the hope to act with truth and conviction. Our hope in Jesus should propel us to show people how it really is. A fallen world, yes, that's worth loving because Christ is redeeming it. If you found new life in Jesus, I charge you right along with myself Don't withdraw from the world. Don't joke about moving to Canada. Don't jokingly encourage people you don't agree with, you might as well move to Canada. Engage. You are a bearer of hope, a witness to the life-giving work of Jesus. You are an agent of shalom. And you're uniquely positioned to bring light into a dark world. So go to work tomorrow. Go to work and let your life tell it how it really is. Live as though Jesus were Lord. Refuse to engage in false witness, character defamation, doomsday predictions. Refuse it. Name brokenness for what it is and be a ridiculous agent of hope in the face of it. Launch people with your words. Go to school tomorrow. Tell it how it really is. Refuse to gossip and bully. Refuse to engage in racist jokes and sexist talk. Be full of life. Be a hopeful alternative to all the chatter on Twitter and Facebook. Wake up tomorrow and pray for unity. Pray for reconciliation. Pray that the witness of the church... Would reflect the true nature of Jesus. Lord, we confess to you our false witness by the things that we have said and the things that we've left unsaid. We pray for transformation from the inside out. We pray for your shalom, God. I pray for your shalom over each one of the people here tonight, the people in our parish that we love and pray for. Lord, would you launch us with truth, with the way things really are, that even in brokenness, you call us out to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Lord, we know, we know that we're broken. And we feel oftentimes disqualified. Who are we? We're not even close to experiencing the full peace of Christ. I thank you that you don't call us to be perfect first. And I pray for healing. I pray for wisdom. I pray for discretion, Lord. When we want to tear people down, when we're angry, Help us to refuse that course of action. Help us instead to be full of genuine hope and courage to say the things that might be hard to hear. But I thank you for this high calling of being your representative in the world, a world that desperately needs you. And help us, Lord, to be your representative for each other as well to encourage one another, to build each other up, God, to speak truth and love. Bless you, Jesus, for doing all of this on our behalf. Amen.